This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. I'd like to thank Laird Superfood for sponsoring this episode. My nutrition has changed a lot over the last year since I decided to look after myself a little bit more, not just for me, but my family too. One constant note is my coffee, and you'll know I'm a big coffee lover. It's not just part of my morning, but my daily routine. Laird Superfood and their creamers have been a bit of a game changer for me and taken my coffee game to a whole new level. It's the perfect way to not only fuel your morning, but your whole day with organic, natural, plant-based ingredients. And for me as a diabetic, there is no sugar from highly refined corn syrup. There's also a huge variety of snacks, baking mixes and protein options for you to try, all made with plant-based ingredients to keep you charged for whatever life takes you. Are you ready to feel more energised, focused and supported? Go to lairdsuperfood.com and add nourishing plant-based foods to fuel you from sunset to sunrise. Use promo code THATUFO at checkout to save 15% off your purchase today. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and I have been fortunate to speak to many people on this podcast and hear them share some incredible experiences. Calvin Parker, Jim Semivan, members of the Experiencer Group and Whitley Strieber, among many others. My guest today is a former United States Air Force medic and EMT. His academic achievements include a bachelor's degree in psychology from Park University and a Juris Doctor from Western Michigan. As well as this, he is a retired lawyer and former Assistant Attorney General. I think I've covered the bases, so I'd like to welcome podcast uh, to the podcast author and researcher, Terry Lovelace. Terry, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's a real pleasure to be here. Now, that's quite the background you've got, which makes the story all the more incredible, I think. Um, so I want to ask you, Terry, does your story with the UFO phenomenon begin in 1977, or does it go back further? You know, it really goes back to early childhood, um, and that, that seems to be uh, common among a lot of the experiencers that I talk to. Uh, I had experiences at age four, five, six, all the way through about seven. Um, but the, the, real, the real big event in my life happened in 1977 while I was on active duty in the United States Air Force. So let's talk about that then, and we'll circle back later to some of those those childhood incidents. Um, of course, you're you're famous for your book and the event, the incident at Devil's Den. Can you just tell me first where is the Devil's Den? It sounds very ominous, uh, and what was it that brought you to being there? You know, you know, it is ominous. That that's the right word to use. Um, I spent six years on active duty in the Air Force. I, I worked as an EMT in an emergency room. And my uh, co-worker and my best friend, uh, Tobias, and I, uh, we were both city kids. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri. He grew up in Detroit, Michigan. And uh, we worked a midnight shift, 11 p.m. to to 8 a.m. in the morning. And one night he says, you know, he says, hey, man, I got an idea. Let's go camping. And I'm like, camping? You know, what, what do I know about camping? I've never been camping in my life. And I knew he'd never been camping in his life. And he's like, no, no, think about it. It'd be fun. You know, it'd be out. We'll, we'll be in the outdoors. We'll get some fresh air. It'll be, uh, it'll be a blast. He says, I got the perfect place to go. He spoke with someone who was a fisherman who told him about this place called Devil's Den State Park. And uh, real quick, I did some research on it when I wrote the book in 2017. And Devil's Den, because I wanted to find out where did they get the name Devil? How did that negative, that uh, diabolic, 
connotation get attached to this park. And I uh, went back as far as I could go, and I found that there were two Native American tribes that owned the land. Um, one owned half, the other owned the other half. Um, and I contacted a medicine woman uh, from the Kato, C-A-T-O, Kato uh, tribe in, uh, uh, in northwest Arkansas. I forget the name of the little town. And asked her if she'd talk to me, and she did. And she gave me... Uh, a brief history of Devil's Den as far as their people are concerned. And she told me that as far back as they don't have written, they only have oral traditions, as far back as oral tradition will take them, that Devil's Den State Park has always been cursed ground, that it was a place where they would transit through to get from point A to point B, but they never camped there, never hunted there, never fished there, um, she said it was cursed ground. I, uh, I then followed up. I had a, a friend with the, who, from University of Michigan in Ann Arbor who had a friend through a connection to the University of Arkansas, uh, and it spoke to the anthropology department and an archaeologist who had done excavations all around the area. And he and his wife work as a team, and, and she told me that they had done excavations all around the area. Uh, but she said it was very unique. Inside Devil's Den, they've never found a single artifact, not a single flint tool, not that evidence of burnt charcoal. There's absolutely no evidence of any human habitation inside that park area. And all around it, there's, there's evidence uh, going back thousands of years. So uh, she said it's, it's a unique place. <laughs> And there have been a lot of people disappear uh, mysteriously from Devil's Den State Park. Um, I can give you two real quick examples to yeah, kind of please. set the stage. One, one happened, the first one I found happened in 1947, and it was a little girl, seven years of age, named Catherine Van Als, and her family was from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And they took a, a trip in a camper. Uh, shortly after World War II, there was a kind of a camping craze that went through the United States and people were buying these pull behind campers and uh, the family, it was uh, the mother, father, uh, two younger siblings, and then Catherine Van Alst, as I said, age seven. And they drove and they plotted their trip on their way south to El Paso, Texas to spend, they were going to spend two nights in the campgrounds at Devil's Den State Park. So uh, they Got to the campground, have a fine time, get all set up, had a, uh, an uneventful night. And then the following morning of their second day, uh, the mother is putting breakfast on, on uh, a picnic table and uh, at the camp's campground. And the two boys are running around the camper and uh, the mother looks over and says, boys, where's your sister? And they're like, well, she's right here. Well, she wasn't. And they said, we, we swear she was right here. And, you know, mother is annoyed, but not, not too freaked out. She says, go find your sister. So, of course, they, they run to the restrooms and they run to the kiosk in the ranger station. And they're, they're looking all over for their sister. And they come back and they're, they're, they're freaked out. And they're like, we can't, we can't find her. So this commotion gets dad involved. And he comes out and uh, 
he's half panicked. He's like, let's find her because this campground is in the middle of very thick forest, extremely thick forest all the way around high rocky terrain. Uh, it'd be difficult for her to manage. She was in a swimsuit with uh, like flip-flop sandals and it'd be uh, it'd be a very difficult terrain for her to get around in. Uh, but they get other campers involved, can't find her, they're calling her name. They get park rangers involved, they're calling her, can't find her. Uh, the search expands. This is a state park and there is a, uh, a federal park on the other side, on the east side, uh, and a larger park uh, called Ozark National Forest. And there were a lot of park rangers assigned there and they came over, they got involved in this hunt. And then first night passes, no Catherine, second night passes, and the search is set up to last seven days. On the seventh day, it'll, it'll, it'll shift from a rescue to a recovery. Uh, and of course, that'll knock down the urgency and uh, she'll be a lost little girl. On the seventh day, there was a, um, a group of students. There were student volunteers from the University of Arkansas who came in by the busloads who were out helping hunt for this little girl. And this um, young man named um, Porter Chadwick was his name. Porter Chadwick is walked up on a high elevation, a bluff, uh, and is yelling for Catherine. And this little girl in a swimsuit and sandals walks out from underneath this uh, rock overhang and says, here I am. And he breaks down. He's like, oh, my God, where have you been? And runs over and picks her up. And they were at an elevation of about 760 feet above the campground. And the terrain was so steep and rocky that it's a zigzag uh, switchback trail that you have to walk through to get up there. Uh, no idea how she did that in, in sandals. Uh, so he carries her down to the, to the campground. Little girl's been missing for six nights, seven days. Back at the campground, they have a doctor there. She is 100% hydrated. She has not lost an ounce of weight. According to her mother, her mother said, quote, that her, her hair smelled clean. She had washed it the evening before she went missing. And they asked her, they said, well, you know, Catherine, where have you been? And she said, I don't know. I just heard somebody call my name and I thought you sent them to get me. And they asked her, how did you get up here? And she said, I don't know. I, I tried to find her. I had no luck. Of course, she may have had a married name. 1947 is a long time ago. Uh, God, I would have loved to have talked to her. Uh, likewise, Porter Chadwick, I couldn't find him either. Um, but it's well documented in our, our newspaper articles, both in the Kansas City Star and the Pittsburgh Press. Uh, so it's just an amazing, creepy story. Uh, yeah, and as a father, I'm glad the little ghetto gets found at the, at the oh, end. Um, I, I, got, I can't imagine, yeah, yeah. It's got so many hallmarks of different classic cases of abduction, but then returning, you know, missing time is assumed within that. And like you say, it's one of those, it's a shame that it was so long ago, the little girls lived a full life, I hope, and it's potentially still with us or passed on at this time. And same with the student who found her. But 
yeah, and obviously we're going to get on to talk about your case. You said there was a second case as well? There was. I'll mention that just briefly. When I was researching uh, Devil's Den for my book, um, coincidentally, in August of 2017, um, there was a young man from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, uh, and his name was Rodney Letterman. And this has turned into kind of a famous case. I'm right in the middle of writing this book, and I'm paying attention to the local press down there to trying to collect as many of these odd stories as I can find. This uh, Rodney Letterman and his friend from Bartlesville, Oklahoma, drive down to Arkansas uh, to go to the state park with the idea that they were going to walk across what's called the Butterfield Trail. The Butterfield Trail is uh, mostly paved. It's an easy walk. It cuts through the park. Uh, It gets its name from the Butterfield Stagecoach Line, which ran through there until 1859 when the... uh, uh, War between the states or the Civil War, depending on where you're from, um, started. And uh, their, their plan was to just walk the trail. Now, Rodney Letterman had asthma, and he carried an inhaler with him normally because he'd have an asthma attack and he'd need the inhaler to, to breathe. Um, so they're into their walk, and uh, he says to his friend, you know, I'm, ha- I'm, I'm short of breath. I left my inhaler in the truck. Could you run get it for me? And his friend's like, sure, no no worries, man. Friend runs back to the parking lot, maybe a half mile, grabs uh, Rodney's inhaler from the truck, runs back, gets back, and there's no Rodney Letterman. He's gone. His cell phone is lying on the ground. Now, I don't know about you, but my cell phone's either in front of me or it's in my pocket, but I wouldn't I wouldn't leave it on the, on the ground. Yeah. And just, just like with... Um, just like with uh, Catherine Van Alst, on, on either side of this trail, the terrain is rocky and rough, elevated, uh, thick vegetation. So a guy having an asthma attack, you know, might st- step off the trail for a few feet to relieve himself, but he's not physically capable of, of taking a hike. Uh, so curiously, the park rangers reacted immediately. They weren't like, oh, your friend's probably just on a walk. Don't worry about it. There was none of that. They didn't minimize it. Um, they, they took it very seriously. And they organized a search immediately. And just like Catherine Van Alst, I guess the standard is to run the search for seven days. Uh, and in 2017, technology had improved. They had you know, helicopters with FLIR, the forward-looking infrared radar, where they could grab a heat signature off of a human being walking at, at night or in the mm-hmm. daytime. Uh, so they had a lot of resources and they devoted all of their resources to finding Rodney Letterman. And in the beginning, in the prologue of Incident at Devil's Den, I wrote, this is all I know is that he is missing. And uh, the family paid a private firm to search for him in October of 20, up through the end of October in 2017. And then the money ran out and, and Rodney was just gone. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I promised the readers that I would let them know if uh, if there was an update, and there there was an update in uh, February of 2019. Um, there was a young couple walking up the Butterfield Trail, a man and a woman, uh, early 20s, and there's a log on the side of the road that kind of differentiates where the path is 
from the forest. They have these logs lying around just to create a, a pathway. And sitting on top of this log in dead center, the girl says, is that an albino turtle? And her friend is like, what? And he looks and um, walks over to the log and dead center of the log, right in the middle, there is a, a diamond shaped uh, object that looks like bone. And he walks over and he picks it up and he looks at it and he says, I think this is, I think this is human. I think this is part of a skull. Now, but now when I, when I read this um, out of the Bartlesville Examiner, my first thought was that that's a staged crime scene. I mean, back to my days as a felony prosecutor, mm. uh, I, I, I think how would, how would part of someone's skull uh, bleached white from the sun, how would that suddenly end up on this trail where thousands of people walk on a weekly basis and yeah. no one saw or noticed it? Park rangers are through there all the time. So this just appeared. Uh, and the park rangers uh, did the correct thing. They treated it with a forensic protocol. They collected it. They sent it to, on a hunch, they sent it to the Bartlesville, Oklahoma medical examiner who conducted a DNA test and verified that it was indeed the skull cap, the very top of Rodney Letterman's skull. And that is all that's ever been found of Rodney Letterman, not a stitch of clothing or anything. So uh, just another example of, uh, of the weirdness that goes on there. Oh, also, and also while I'm writing the book in 2017, a young woman uh, in her late 20s uh, was in the park and came up missing, and they found her at the base of a 100-foot-tall cliff. Young woman, little kids at home, uh, and they called it a suicide. The medical examiner said it was a suicide. The mother claimed her daughter had not been depressed, didn't take any medication for depression. Mm -hmm. um, so there were, uh, you know, two deaths attributable to Devil's Den in the year 2017. So, uh, and, and some strange of was, place, spooky place. Yeah. Are you familiar with David Pelides and his missing 411 work as well? Yeah, much of that. I've just watched the UFO connection before Christmas again, just after, and I'd watched his missing 411, The Hunted, and so many, again, of those hallmarks, people missing, no clothing turning up, odd parts again showing up far later where they had already searched areas and yes. there's a lot of things there that are very difficult to attribute to a bear attack or some kind of wolf attack you know um it just doesn't always add up does it and obviously we're we're getting at as there and i hate to say this because we're, we're dealing with a serious subject and there's there's a mother and you know a son and children going missing and many times these people don't return and to to then have a conversation about potential alien abduction, it's very difficult to have that, isn't it? And put that in there as a potential outcome when you're dealing with something so serious. But someone like yourself knows all too well the, the subject of alien abduction is itself a serious one. You know, I, I spoke with David Politis, uh, and in his Missing 411 series, the fourth book in the series is entitled The Devil is in Details. And that's a really interesting read because uh, David Pilates is a, is a data-driven kind of guy, kind of like myself in, in some ways. Mm -hmm. And um, he's big on demographics and statistics. 
and he found that parks and uh, nature preserves and uh, uh, you know open area under the under the uh, purview of the Bureau of Land Management, managed by the U.S. government, but not really uh, these kind of places. If they have the name Devil Diablo, some type of reference to the devil in the name, seem to have a much higher occurrence of people going missing. And, you know, there's a Devil's Pond, Devil's Tower, Devil's Cave. The the name is, there's there's literally hundreds of of iterations of of, uh, the name Devil. Um, But yeah, I I thought that that was was fascinating research to find that out. What's the connection? Who knows? Maybe coincidental. Uh, I don't know. Uh, As far as the UFO connection goes, uh, obviously I have my thoughts on that. uh, And my convictions are, are pretty strong. Um, David Politis, uh, in private will allude to that, but I don't think he wants to come out and, and, and make that statement that that's a, a real possibility. And I think he's concerned and it's probably a legitimate concern because he's a data driven guy. He likes, he likes proof. He likes empirical proof. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously no one has that yet. And, uh, but you know. It's a strange place. Weird stuff happens there. Well, when you say that, there's that lack of proof. Living that experience for you is obviously all the proof you need. And that's what obviously you're best known for as well. And I think you've set it up incredibly well because those are a couple of fascinating cases of a very strange area. And again, you have potentially, or goes without saying, the most famous one of all. If you want to get us back to 1977, Let's talk yes. to your own experience, Terry, at Devil's Den. Yes, let me let me. Um, we uh, we planned this this uh, we planned a four day weekend. We got it cleared with our employer, uh, the Air Force, and uh, we left. We were both stationed at Whiteman Air Force Base. It's still there. It's in Western Missouri, um, and we uh, drove six and a half hours south to the Missouri Arkansas border. Devil's Den State Park abuts right up next to the Ozark National Forest. Both of these parks, are, they're huge. They just consume a big chunk of, uh, of northwest Arkansas. And uh, we drove down there with the intention that we weren't going to stay in the campgrounds. Now, I didn't understand that at first. I told my friend, you know, let's stay in the campground. We got hot showers. We got water. We got electric hookup. And, you know, and he made the point, you know, look, if we're going to, if we're going to do that, we're going to have people to the right of us, people to the left of us. Uh, he said, you know, you might as well camp in uh, you know, Walmart's parking lot or something. He says, you know, let's, let's be real outdoorsmen. Now, you know, here, here are two guys. I was 22 at the time. Uh, Toby was 23. Neither of us had ever been camping a day in our life. And here we're going to, we're going to be real outdoorsmen. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to go find our own place to camp. So we dodged the ranger station and we took a road. Um, and it's still kind of, I don't understand how we found this place, but we did by happenstance. We, we took a paved road that turned to gravel, that turned to dirt, and we came to a chain across the road that prevented us from entering. And we were able to get around the chain. It was really just, there was a, a lock looped around the end of it to form like a, a noose and it was draped over a nail on opposing post. And uh, 
there were warning signs, you know, no admittance, keep out, no hunting, no camping, no fishing. I thought it was some kind of nature preserve. I found out in 2017, we weren't actually in Devil's Den State Park, that that area is owned by the Bureau of Land Management. And I may have sent you some photographs of Devil's Den. It's an elevated plateau-like, and the top of this plateau is is clear-cut. Now, I didn't bother looking for it on Google Maps because I thought, you know, this place has to be covered by 40-year-old mature trees by now. Mm -hmm. And it's not. Um, There's still just a dirt road that goes straight up it. Uh, And when you're on the top of this plateau, you are level with the treetops of the surrounding forest. So the place is difficult to find. But the U.S. government spends taxpayer dollars to send a guy up there with a tractor to clear cut the top of this of this plateau. Uh, So there's nothing growing up there. And I guess my question is, why? Um, But that's what's done. Have you ever had a a good reason as to why they may do that? Has anyone ever came back to you to say, actually, here's a justification to spend that money and clear it, or is that still a mystery? Well, it's owned by the Bureau of Land Management. Nobody there is taking questions. So, okay. you know, they're, they're, I, I'm, I'm sure that there has to be a reason. Um, other than to burn gasoline, there has to be a reason. Um, you know, it's an assumption on my part, but... Uh, I'm left with the assumption that uh, ET comes and goes from there. I mean, what what other reason can I can I think of? Um, I think it's a landing spot. Okay. So, and again, that's just just assumption on my part. But um, we we found this place. We drove up. We thought it was perfect. I mean, it was a it's a it was a beautiful place. You know, there was about six inches of grass. You know, wildflowers all over the place. It was, it was gorgeous, just a really pretty place. And uh, the view was fantastic. We could see all the way around us, 360 degrees. And there was, I mean, there was, other than or the, other than forest, there, there was nothing. I mean, it's, there, there were no houses. Um, that was back in 1977. I think there are some uh, garages that you can see in the distance off the Google Earth image. But I think that those, I'm guessing those are probably to house the tractor and whatever they use to clear cut the top of that. Um, so we set up a campground. We set up a little campground. We, uh, I'll kind of cut through to the chase here. We did all the fun stuff you do when you go camping because it was all new to us. We'd never done mm-hmm. it before. You know, we built a nice bonfire. We um, barbecue hot dogs. We're sitting back. Um, we're on these air mattresses. And we have a campfire between us and we have a tent, you know, just a $10 cheap tent uh, we bought for that purpose set up in back of us. And uh, it's getting on to 9 p.m., maybe a little later. And we're carrying on this conversation and just having a good time. And it was pleasant out and that it was a a warm day in June, uh, but there was a nice breeze and there were all the uh, things in the forest that make noise, you know, crickets, tree frogs, bugs. I don't know, but, yeah, yeah. you know, uh, and they were fairly loud. They were loud enough that we had difficulty carrying on a conversation across this bonfire or this campfire that we had. 
And uh, I, I'm sitting back and, and we're just uh, talking. And I noticed that it abruptly went quiet. And not only did it go quiet, it went still. Where we had enjoyed a nice breeze beforehand, uh, there, was, there was nothing. The breeze was stopped. Uh, I could see the fire. I, the fire was the only thing that made noise. And it unnerved me because it didn't seem natural. Mm-hmm. And I asked my friend, of course, like he's going to know, but I asked him anyway. It got awful quiet out here. What, what's up with that, Toby? And he's like, ah, you know, he kind of blows it off, says, don't worry about the bugs. The bugs will come back. The frogs will come back. Don't worry about it. We made, you know, we've been laughing and cutting up, and we just quieted them. They'll be back. Um, and uh, we kind of picked up our conversation. And my friend had his head turned toward the west, and he's fixated on something. And I'm like, hey, man, what are you looking at? And he says, Terry, were those lights there before? And there was nothing out there. There were no lights, no lights anywhere. And I said, what lights? I, I couldn't see them because from where he was sitting, his torso was in the way of what he was looking at. So I had to stand up and take a step back. And on the horizon, on the western horizon, just above the horizon, there were these three bright stars. They were all the same brightness, same luminosity, um, and they formed a little triangle. And they were too high off the horizon to have been lights from a distant train or, uh, mm. you know, a, a parking, uh, a car park. or, or they, they just didn't belong there. And I said, no, I don't, I don't remember those lights there at all. And we're watching them. And while we watched them, they rotated. They rotated like they turned, like they were on an axis and did about a 120 degree turn. Uh, and if you look at the, the base of the triangle, the base of the triangle lined up uh, parallel with the horizon. So there was an apex pointing up. And uh, it was strange because our emotions and our reactions were muted. They weren't, they weren't, we should have been, we should have been freaked out. We should have been asking each other questions like human beings would do. Hey, what are you seeing? And validate what I'm looking at. You seeing what I'm seeing? You know, what is this thing? But there was none of that. And the thing started to go while, while we're watching it, after it realigned itself and pointed up, it started to travel upward. And as soon as that happened, I felt a wave of calm wash over me, um, almost like sedation. And all that, all that feeling of nervousness, that anxiety that I experienced earlier was gone. And um, it was an odd experience. I've not experienced anything like it since. It was a um, sensation that I was more of an observer I felt detached from it somehow, uh, rather than a participant in it. I'd like to thank Paperlike for sponsoring this episode. Something that's always held me back from making more use of my Apple Pencil for notes is the feeling across the screen it still felt like I'm writing on glass, especially when scribbling notes for podcast episodes. Paperlike have very much changed how I use my existing iPad and it's giving it a new lease of life. 
Paperlike is perfect for anyone who draws and writes using an iPad and an Apple Pencil. The surface of the Paperlike is coated using nanodots, tiny microbeads that are designed to add superior stroke precision when you drag the Apple Pencil across the screen. Every Paperlike comes in a set of two, so you'll always have a spare in case you need. I'm no artist either, but my kids certainly approve of using it to draw and doodle, and I can have peace of mind the screen underneath is completely protected. To pick up your Paperlike, head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO, click buy Paperlike and select your iPad size. Plus, shipping is completely free. Ready to do more with your iPad? Then head over to paperlike.com forward slash that UFO to get started. That's that's exactly what I was going to ask you. Do you feel the triangle at this point was aware of you and your friend? Or again, was it just that you were observing and it was something that was happening elsewhere and you weren't anything to do with it? I was observing and I felt like I wasn't a participant, an active participant. But I absolutely felt like, um, and I've, I've said this before, being there was like we were keeping an appointment. Um, and what was playing out in front of us, uh, when I say I wasn't a participant, I had no, I mean that I had no uh, control over anything. I was just there along for the ride. And just to, just to watch this thing play out. Wrong um, place at the right time. I'm sorry? Was it the wrong place, but the right time? Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I uh, again, I think it speaks to the level of influence that these things can have over us because uh, our emotions were so inappropriate to what was going on. And we watched these three stars climb into the sky and, uh, they reached what I would call a ceiling, and I had no, no point of reference. It was pitch dark. I had no point of reference how high that was. But uh, they were high in the sky, I can say that, because the points were, were three, the three stars were close together. And it stopped moving. And once it reached this ceiling, it reoriented itself and moved like this. So that instead of going up, the triangle was now pointed in our direction because instead of seeing a triangle, we now saw a line of three lights, you know, the center light and the two, two lights on either end. Mm -hmm. So it was pointed directly in our direction. It was, it was coming toward us and it did, it wasn't fast. It did a slow, like a glide plane, like, um, just a slow descent, uh, but steadily in our direction. And it must have been high because this took some, some minutes for it to happen. It did a somersault thing where the tip, the apex of the triangle, dipped down and the thing flipped completely over and then reoriented itself. And it did that at least twice. And I had the feeling that that was done for our benefit that that was this thing's way of letting us know that it's under control. You know, it's like somebody's driving this thing. And uh, uh, I, I just had a strong sense of that. And it, it came toward us 
And as it got lower, it got probably, was at, I'm guessing, 5,000 feet. And there were points on the tip of each of the triangle with white lights, and those dimmed somewhat. And it came and it, it stopped directly over our campsite. Uh, actually, we weren't, it, we weren't directly underneath it. We had camped kind of off to the side so that this thing wasn't exactly underneath us, which I was grateful for. And also by being off to the side, we could kind of see the side of the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was big. It was enormous. Uh, it was like a, uh, like a large single-story building, maybe a medical building or a large shopping uh, center or something. Uh, but it, it was on the order of that magnitude size-wise. It was big. Uh, heard no noise. Felt no anxiety whatsoever. Um, and we really had no conversation about it. We were just there. And shortly after it came to a stop, directly from underneath and in the center of the triangle, there came a, a, a laser type of light. And it was a, a white light that had a milky white quality to it. And it was about six inches in diameter. And it just, like someone hit a switch, clicked on and landed directly in the center of our campfire. And uh, we both looked at it and it was odd. I mean, there was no fog. It was a clear night. But this light beam had that quality of a like a high power searchlight or a, a nautical navigational light. Yeah. Searchlight that cuts through fog. You can mm-hmm. see visible it had that quality to it and we both looked at it and I don't think we said a word and we could visually follow it up to the center underneath of this triangle and uh, then that just boom shut off and the second that it shut off um, it shot from the same spot a laser beam in our direction now Laser beams were brand new in 1977. I'd seen them on television, but I'd never seen one in real life before. Yeah. And this one was a, about the diameter of a, of a lead pencil. Uh, and it was um, red, reddish purple in color. And what it would do is it would land in our campsite on something and stay there for literally a millisecond and then reappear somewhere else. So it, like, it, it struck my car, it struck our tent, it struck me at least three times in my chest, never felt a thing. It hit my friend, our campfire, it hit his backpack. All the things that we bought, brought with us that really didn't belong up there until we brought them, uh, it focused on those. And I, I, I had the idea this thing's checking us out. Uh, and that's all I could, that's all I could think of it was doing because it was just, and it was I that gave the solution that it was dancing all over the campsite. Uh, my friend had struck him several times. He would later admit he didn't, he never felt a thing either. So that, that shut off after, you know, time is difficult to estimate. It seemed like about 90 seconds could have been 30 to could have been uh, 120 but yeah. in that range is how long this, this event lasted. 
And uh, as soon as the as soon as that light shut off, um, now remember I said earlier when they, when we first saw this thing, I felt that wave of sedation of calm wash over me. Mm. Um, I felt that sedation transition to sleepy and because there's, there's a distinct difference between the two uh, and I mean I was you know in good shape 22 years old I had no reason to be sleepy I was used to working a night shift no big deal I should not have been sleepy um, but all I wanted to do was go in a tent lay down and go to sleep that's all I wanted to do and my friend had the same idea and he stood up and he said, show's over. And that's, that's I think, the only two words that we ex- exchanged um, during this encounter. He picked up his air mattress and he went over to the tent and threw it in and, and climbed in on top of it and fell down and just was out like that. And then as soon as he was situated, a small tent, as soon as he was situated, I threw my air mattress in on the left side. I climbed in and uh, fell on top of the mattress. And my last thought before I passed out was that Toby had been wrong because the, the crickets, the tree frogs never did return. It was still dead quiet. And I was out. Uh, I didn't bother to take off my shirt, my boots, anything. I just fell on top of the air mattress, air mattress and I was out. Some time passed. I had no recollection of having any dreams. Uh, it just almost like being uh, under medical anesthesia where, you know, you just close your eyes, you wake up, there's nothing in between. Mm-hmm. And I woke up to these yellow lights, yellow flashing lights coming through the canvas of the tent um, in front of me and to my left, or pardon me, to my right. And these flashes of light are at odd intervals and they're incredibly bright. I mean, bright like an old school uh, flashbulb, just brilliant. Uh, and in that fraction of a second, it would light up the inside of that tent like like crazy, like daytime. And uh, I wake up and I don't, I don't have my wits about me. And I'm thinking, you know, what is this? Uh, what, what? And then I'm trying to think of some rational explanation and what I came up with that these must be the overhead flashing lights of a park ranger's truck there to kick us out. That was the only thing I could think of that made sense. And I sat up and uh, I wasn't worried about the park rangers. I, you know, I'd throw us out of the park. I didn't expect to be, you know, any consequence other than that. Hmm. And uh, I sat up and I noticed that my, I wore my combat boots, blue jeans and a t-shirt. And my boots had been unlaced almost all the way down. And that, I guess, annoyed is right. That annoyed me because I knew I, I, I didn't put them on like that. I mean, I, I would have either I would have either left them laced up or I'd have taken them off, but I wouldn't have left my boots untied. I mean, it's a trip hazard. It doesn't make sense. I would not have done that. And uh, I gave that my immediate attention. I pulled off my boot um, and my socks were on sideways. And that really confused me. And it didn't hit me yet that we'd been undressed and redressed. 
is the reason for this. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I was annoyed and I put them on properly and I laced my boots up um, and the lights are still flashing. And I, in, in one of these flashes of light, I can see my friend Toby is on his knees and he is peeking out through a flap on his side of the tent. And this all happened pretty quick. And I, I, I say, Toby, man, what are you looking at? What's out there? Is it park rangers? What's out there? And he doesn't answer me. And in one of these flashes of light, I could see tracks of tears down the right side of his face. And that scared me. That was really the first fear that I felt, the first real fear that I felt in this whole encounter. Because I couldn't imagine what would make this guy cry. That made no sense. And uh, I asked him again, Toby, what's out there? And he doesn't, he doesn't give me a coherent answer. And I got to my knees and I looked out the flap on my side of the tent and this thing that had been somewhere around 3,000 feet, I'm guessing, over our heads um, when we went to bed had descended and it was now just 30 feet over the floor of this meadow. So it was, like I say, I was grateful that we had camped off to the side because otherwise it had been it felt like it right on top of us. And that was the reason these lights were so bright was we were near one of those points and the, the flashing light was in our direction. And uh, it was pitch dark except for when these, when these lights would flash at odd intervals. And um, I'm looking and in one of these flashes of light, I can see what I first took to be children. Uh, somewhere between a dozen, maybe 15, I didn't count them. Children, three foot tall, maybe a tad less, walking around this meadow, and they're all paired up in twos and threes. And they're walking around like uh, like tourists or something. They're just walking around, checking things out, looking around. Um, they're walking leisurely. They had an odd gait. They walk with a bit of a limp. Their, their gait wasn't the way you or I would walk. Something about their gait was off. Mm -hmm. And I'm confused. And I, I'm like, Toby, man, what, what the hell? What are these kids doing out here in the middle of the night, you know, in the middle of nowhere? And he said, Terry, man, look at them. Those ain't little kids. Look at them. They're not human beings. And when he said that, I looked again. And I could see that their torsos, their limbs were disproportionate to their body. Their heads were larger than they should have been, and they were all uh, they were all the same. They were all uniform. And I have a theory about, you know, I and there may be a hundred different varieties of grays. I mean, because I, I I say this and I have people email me and said, no, that's not right. Grays are this or grays are that. But I can only tell you what I saw, and what I saw gave me the impression that these things were manufactured. Mm -hmm. Maybe intuitively, somehow I knew that these weren't living, they weren't sentient beings in the way that you and I are, you know, conscious, self-aware. Uh, you know, you mentioned Calvin Parker, uh, who's a friend, and uh, Calvin and I had this uh, conversation, and he describes to them as, quote, little robots. Yeah. And I, ha I had that same, I had that same feeling that they, they felt 
like something that was manufactured. They didn't seem real. Uh, or not, right? They were they were definitely real, but they weren't sentient and living. So we're watching them and we're terrified. We're scared to death that we're going to sneeze or cough or make some noise and draw their attention. And of course, they were long done with us. So uh, whatever they were doing. And while we were watching from underneath this thing, there came a column of light that came on, boom, just like all of a sudden. And it was about 30 feet in diameter because it was about the same diameter as this thing was tall off the floor of the meadow. So I'm guessing 30 feet and it was a column of white light and it had that milky white quality to it that that beam had uh, that looked like a searchlight cutting through fog. And the second this thing turned on, all of these little guys turned their attention toward it and they start walking toward it. And they're, they're not rushed, they're not in a hurry, they're taking their time but they're making their way toward this light. And they're kind of farming up a cue, and the first two step into the light, and over the course of about 30 seconds, maybe a little less, they would pixelate out. Um, there was the original Star Trek series, which I'm sure aired, uh, aired in, 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 in Britain. Oh, yeah. Um, back in the 60s. Yep. And there was a um, thing they called the transponder, transporter. So I'm not a sci-fi fan the, the, at all. The transporter, yeah, I remember. That, that's it. And they would stand on this little platform and they would just pixelate out. And uh, that's what these things did. They, they stood, they pixelated out, and they were gone. And as soon as they vanished, then the next two or three would step into the light. And in that order, they eventually, the last couple pixelate out and they're gone. The second that they're gone, that light turns off. And when it turned off, um, the lights on the points of the triangle changed intensity. Uh, and they went from being multicolored to just white. And uh, this thing lifted off and it didn't lift off like a... Um, it didn't lift off like a rocket ship. It just, it lifted off like a hot air balloon. It just kind of rose. And um, I have a hand-drawn picture of it that I should have sent you and didn't. I failed to. That's at terrylovelace.com. Um, I have a, a hand-drawn picture that I drew kind of contemporaneous with the event. Uh, I, I redrew for inclusion into my book. And that's a pretty good representation of what we saw. That link for the website will be in the description to the podcast. So if anyone's listening, they can click on that and or head to terrylovelace.com and, and they'll be able to see that, which I suggest they do. Sure. I so, want to ask you, Terry, just, just before you carry on. Yes. It's, it's a good place just to ask you a quick question. I don't want to break up the story too much because it's, it's amazing to listen to. You mentioned the, the greys, these t small robot type, you know, AI potentially we hear about third generation AI are they really intelligent clones or robots and you mentioned that scene and it makes me think of Close Encounters the third kind when the little grey aliens come out the craft and they're all standing in the light and there's again they were played by little children in the movie and they're, they're in that kind of mass that sea of, sea of beings do you have any thoughts then or over time as to the source of these beings if they're being created or manufactured, 
Have you ever thought about why or by who? I have. And, you know, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question because uh, I, uh, I don't watch sci-fi movies. I don't watch outer space movies um, very, very rarely. And uh, encouragement from my wife and my kids are like, come on, you got to see this. It's a great movie. You'll love it. Uh, and I did enjoy it until that scene. And that scene where, if I recall, there's a ramp that comes down, there's a thick fog or mist, mm. and the little gray guys step out of it. Yeah. And um, I had a panic attack. I, I flipped out and, mm. and left the theater and uh, waited outside for my family. And I said, I, 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 I can't go back there, not right now. I, I, I just needed to get away from that. Um, I have some PTSD-like symptoms, and, I, and I'll answer the rest of your question. But I want to interject with this, if I could. Sure. Yeah. You know, I had that that uh, panic attack, and anyone who's ever had a genuine panic attack knows how unpleasant that really is. And I was in a shopping mall with my wife, 1987, around Christmas time, and I walked around a corner, and there was a store that was set up with a long table, and it had these. Uh, female mannequins. They were just from the waist up. And their arms, they weren't dressed. Uh, they had heads, but there was no hair. There were no facial facial features and just arms extended. Um, and I, walking through the mall, turned around and I, I looked at this and something about, there were four mannequins set up on that table. These mannequins, I flipped out. I absolutely flipped out. And um, had nightmares about mannequins for weeks. Uh, you know, also, and lastly, now I'll get back to answering your question. Um, I can't cut across an open field. Now I'll walk a mile and a half to get around it, but I can't walk out in open spaces because I feel vulnerable. Um, and I have some other PTS like symptoms that, uh, from people that I've talked to, I'm not alone. They, they, this is, this is pretty common stuff. And your question was, did I have a feeling uh, or an intuition about where these things come from? Yeah, either uh, at the time, which may be difficult, or, or since then, you know, a source, a creator. Yeah, I had that sense that they were, man like I said, that they were manufactured and that they were manufactured by whatever it is that, that manufactured this craft. Because this thing that I'm looking at... Um, it was a nuts and bolts put together kind of thing. And uh, I've been through this in my mind many times over, over 45 years. And this thing had to be put together in a factory by beings that, you know, went to work in some factory that probably had job. This was their job and mm. got a paycheck and went home at the end of the day, had their own families, uh, just not human and not from here. Because whatever I saw, I don't think originated on this planet. And I saw some other things, too, that, that, that left me with that impression. Um, they, they, weren't, they weren't from here. Uh, what else gave you that impression? I don't have and never have had a clear linear memory of what happened to us inside that ship. But I have flashes. I have bits and pieces of memory. And uh, 
I can run through a couple of those for you because I, I say there aren't that many because I don't have that many memories. Um, is that relevant now? Do you, do you do you remember that from that moment? I don't want to take you out the story in the the chronological order you're telling it, but at the point the the object's gone, is did you still remember what had happened at that point, or did that come later? Both. Uh, immediately after the event, I recalled some things. There were some things that were a little more uh, frightening that that came back in the form. And I think they're genuine uh, memories. I don't think these are, are, you know, they're not, uh, they're not dreams. They're, they're not, they're, they're genuine memories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a little bit of both. Uh, I remember immediately, I remembered that I was conscious of being inside this thing. And the curious thing is, I don't know if they took us someplace else or if we were just inside the ship. And the reason I question that is because the interior of the ship was way bigger than the thing we were looking at. The thing we were looking at was big. Um, but like if, if I'm comparing this thing to a medical building from the outside, while we were inside it, if that's where we were, I don't know. Um, it was more like a stadium kind sure. of big. So it was incredibly bright inside. It was just lit up like crazy. Uh, and both of us had burns to the cornea of our eyes. They're called flash burns. It's like, it's like a welder would get if they didn't wear that, that mask with the tinted glass to protect their eyes. Uh, so this place was insanely lit. I opened my eyes. They had undressed us. I had my boots and my clothing in my hands like this. And I could sense that Toby was next to me to my left. And there were, I'm doing, the only thing I can move is my eyeballs. I can roll my eyes and I can look, but I can't see what's behind me. I can't turn my head to the left or to the right. So that's, that's my field of vision. It's just what I can see by moving my eyes. Uh, and I was paralyzed otherwise. Um, and, can, you know, I, we talked about Calvin Parker. I think Calvin had the same experience where yeah. he, the only thing he could move was his eyes. Um, and while I'm, I remember taking in that this place was huge, the little gray guys were running all over the place. And when I say running all over the place, I mean they were moving with um, intent, with purpose. You know, they weren't uh, – there weren't any slackers. You know, there was nobody taking a smoke break. Everybody was doing something uh, with a purpose. Mm-hmm. And then this was probably the most frightening thing that, that happened to me. Um, and that was I was aware of a being about six foot tall, you know, almost twice as tall, you know, two meters tall to my right. And um, he was dressed in a, like a gray uniform with a V-neck. I saw, I didn't see any insignia of rank or name tag or anything like that, but this thing was like a sweater. And uh, he wasn't a human being. Uh, He wasn't gray. Uh, His complexion was like a pinkish color. It's odd. It, it, It wasn't, but it wasn't, he was not human. He had uh, 
just two nostrils, uh, a slit for a mouth, no discernible ears. Uh, there was no hair that I could see, only some very sparse, you know, kind of like what I got, very sparse hair. And um, his eyes, his eyes weren't as big as what the grays had. I mean, they weren't like motion picture kind of huge. They were almond shaped, but they were about the size of a pair of Ray-Bans, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and they were, they were jet black and kind of wrapped around. And this guy walks across my field of vision from my left to my right. And I, you know, I pay attention to the way people carry themselves. I always have. And this guy carried himself like an officer or someone in authority. And uh, he didn't look in my direction, but he walked past me and he is somewhere to my left. And I'm straining my eyes as hard as I can to my left to look at this guy. And as I'm doing that, he turned, and I think just by chance, by happenstance, he turned and we locked eyes. And I don't have a better way to explain this other than to say that this guy was in my head. Uh, I mean, he knew me, he knew my plans, he knew my wife, he knew my dreams, he knew my secrets, he knew everything about me. Um, and I guess they would call that a download, that he downloaded my mind. But I felt like he was just in my head. And what I got, what I got back from those eyes was just intellect. Um, I felt inferior to this thing. I felt inferior intellectually, emotionally, physically, every way you can, you can think about it. Uh, matter of fact, I use the analogy, uh, I have a cat who is being kind of difficult right now. That's I have right. a cat who will come over, you know, and I'll pet her and she'll look at me, you know, with those eyes. And um, I, she knows that I'm the food provider. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, as much as a cat can, uh, I'm the alpha in the equation. And uh, I think she knows that. And we each have our respective roles. And when I saw this guy, I felt like I was the cat in the equation. I felt that inferior as a human being. Um, and that was frightening because I had never considered that there were other sentient beings out there that weren't our equals. They were, they were above us. And uh, that was an epiphany. That was a frightening epiphany. So... Were you still fearing fear at this point? What was the, you've, you've had the sedation, the sleepiness, the fear. Now you've got this, this memory of being on board and this, this other entity locks eyes. Do you remember feeling scared? Did you feel drained? Shut out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected-
That UFO podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. 